So, uh, how do I, I never know how I start this thing. What do I, I start with, uh, this is, sorry, what are my radio voice? Hi, do this is The Witness Interview with Rob Reed interviewing the amazing, amazing Amelia Roper. I'd love to tell you you were the first person to do that. Damn it! But Patricia Cornelius featured to it. Oh, that's okay. I'm happy to follow in Patricia Cornelius. I love that's that. Fair. I love that as a start, though. So, yes, we are here with the amazing Amelia Roper, one of my favourite <laughs> playwrights in the country and certainly one of my favourite people in the world. Uh, and she's only here incredibly briefly because she's got a show on, so we're very lucky to have have grabbed her before she goes back to New York where she is living. Now, it has been at least 10 years or more since I've seen you and we've held off from saying anything about, about any of the professional kind of stuff. So tell me, last thing that I knew was <laughs> Big Sky Town and, oh, what's the monster play? Oh, yeah, the Hong Kong play. Dinosaur. Hong Kong Dinosaur, that's MTC it. One. I remember those two. Yeah. And then you being the first Australian taken into Yale drama, am yeah, I right? Yeah, that's and then true. There's Gone. a giant Amelia Roper-sized <laughs> hole in the country. So what happened to fill that hole? You're calling me fat. No, I um, went just to... Just <laughs> your presence. <laughs> I, um, I went to Yale for three years. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay, so I am really interested in playwrights and TV and film now that I do a lot of that uh, versatile in the sense of being able to choose the structure and see the kind of bigger shapes of a story. Mm-hmm. And I felt like at the time in 2010, there were no playwriting programs in Australia. Yeah. So none of the drama schools taught playwriting. Mm-hmm. We have we have amazing programs that teach everybody else how to be amazing. And there wasn't much development. And by the time I'd sort of had a play produced a bunch of times and published and started doing the, the Hong Kong Dinosaur MTC development thing, I also noticed I wasn't eligible for a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I'm... 25 and I have no idea what I'm doing. Mm. How can I no longer be eligible for developmental learning? That just felt a little weird. Mm. So I Googled playwriting courses in America because I wanted to go to America. Never heard of any of them and applied for a bunch that had scholarships because that's what you need. You need a bunch of money to get a student visa to America, um, which of course I didn't have. So yeah, and then got shortlisted for a bunch and went over for interviews, Yale flew me over for an interview, did the interviews in the other places and got into a bunch of them and chose to go to Yale. So I, it was fun. It was three years of conservatory. So basically similar to like the NIDA and VCA where you're just constantly making a lot of work, mm-hmm. but you get to be a playwright in that, making a lot of work for three years. Yeah, right. So it's largely kind of practical writing of stuff and then feedback. Yeah, yeah. and actual productions. So yeah, you right. get a production a year and you get a lot of smaller kind of workshoppy productions. So you're just constantly making work. And reading a lot of plays, including like just a lot of American contemporary plays. And you're also taught by a lot of the best playwrights in the States tend to teach in those programs. So um, they just introduce you to a lot of work that they feel is like in conversation with what you're trying to do. So you never feel like this is how you should do it because this guy did it 100 years ago. But hey, here are like 10 other people that are writing or trying to get at a similar kind of thing or just even style yeah, that's really interesting. So it's it sounds like a kind of really present engagement with what's going on now. Yeah. 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 Which you can do as a playwright in New Haven, Connecticut. It's harder, I think, if you're a director. Maybe not acting because that does take intense amount of like inward looking and training, but you can hide away in a town and learn a lot about American theatre in three years, whereas like... I think directors, if I was a director, I would stay in New York or I would stay in a... Because there's more opportunity to get staged and make work? actually see work. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, whereas playwrights can read plays Yeah. and you can get to New York. It's only two hours away. 
see work, but yeah, you just get to read a lot. I'm going to ask all the boring questions first. So not a lot of theory, none of that, a lot of history, not a lot of dramaturgical sort of stuff? Yeah, there was a bunch of that. There was, there was. Mm. Yeah, totally. The assumption was that a lot of people would have done that in undergrad. Oh, uh, yeah, Because they, a lot of people would have done a drama major in undergrad. I yeah. didn't. I, I'm, I'm a history and English major mm. and, in fact, thought I was going to be an astrophysicist. So I went to uni mm. thinking I was going to do sciences and ended up doing lighting design for theatre, which is how I got into theatre. But... um. Yeah, a lot of people have already got that in their four-year undergrad. Yeah, of course. Yeah, but um, no, yeah. we did do some. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Take note, Australian theatre education people. Okay, so so one of the things that I talk about with uh, universities here and theatre on campus and all that sort of stuff is that it's kind of one of the places where little theatre companies form and the sort of independent theatre companies go out into you know, Melbourne or Sydney or whatever, and they work together and they sort of move through the industry together. Do you have the same sort of thing there? Where does that, where do those kind of initial relationships form? Yeah, it does. There's definitely a lot of sort of small company stuff. It's really started to be uh, something everyone's talking about in cities like New York, San Francisco, LA is not really a theatre town, that those companies, those spaces and those people can't afford to live in those spaces anymore. Mm -hmm. So they're not so... 30 years ago, there was a lot of small companies in New York and there's definitely a lot less now because they've just had to move out mm. or close down, which is purely real estate. Um, so that's a bummer. But uh, yeah, they do. But they do tend to form in the grad schools as well. But I think people go to grad school for a couple of reasons and one maybe is good and one maybe is bad. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. I think that artists that go to train because they want to be told by someone older than them, what is correct and what is incorrect mm. is problematic. Mm, um, yeah. I think listening to a lot of people is great, but you need to have an irreverence. Like you actually need to believe that you're the only one with the answer because that's actually your whole job mm. and that you are as a next generation, like you can learn from the previous one, but you actually have to contribute something different. And um, the best teachers are the ones that just get out of the way, I think a mm. little bit as mm. well. So there's So there's that, but some people really do go to particular grad schools for the branding offer, which actually yeah. I did. I mean, it's, it, we, yeah, I did. I mean, I wanted to be working in all over the world and as America has a population that's 10 times as big. So it's just maths, mm. but the best way to get into and apply for lots of different kind of workshops or get commissions or just get to know all the best people making the best work in America is to go to the best school. I mm. mean, that's just, that, that's just it really. Yeah. yeah. So well, it's the same kind of every everyone who worked on The Simpsons went to Harvard and all that sort right. of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 absolutely, yeah. Um, well, so once you come out of uh, school then, yeah. what's so, and again, here it's just, oh, well, I'm, I've got my mates, I guess we'll start making work wherever we can. Well, what's the next step what's after that? What's the next that step? Um, what, what I don't know what it's, oh, yeah, I don't know what it's like for directors and actors, what that experience is. For playwrights, America is a playwright country. So the playwrights are the superheroes and the playwrights are... It sounds impossible. <laughs> <laughs> well, writers are very much... Uh, legally, you're a bit more protected in that no one can change text. You get final say on casting. You can ask for, and I do, final say on designers and directors. New play theatre is a big, I won't say industry because, you know, there's no money in it for anyone, but, but development no <laughs> of theatre, new new plays is a really big part of American culture. Yeah. So, And it's all donor. It's not government funding. Yeah. So a lot of big theatres will also have a lot of like development. They'll offer big commissions. They'll have a lot of reading programs. 
they'll have a subscriber base that are people that want to see the main stage shows and mm. maybe they want to see some new stuff and some old stuff, but they also want to come along on a Sunday and watch readings and have a talk back and tell you what they thought about mm -hmm. it, which is great. So they feel like they're, because they're donating to that theatre. Mm. So they feel like they're sort of like in a Medici way. They have ownership. Ownership. Yeah. Ownership in the best possible sense. Yeah, like patronage. Yeah. Yeah, which is different. Well, very different. I was going to ask, what are the, from now with 10 years of experience over there, what the big differences are between there and here? And that sounds like a major one. <laughs> That's a big one. Yeah. I think I felt when I was in Australia that A, being a female, but also being a playwright, that I wasn't, I just wasn't treated as an artist with a vision. Yeah. Um, I was, I just wasn't. And I just felt like I wanted to be somewhere where people understood that I was a human, adult human and an yeah, artist. Yeah. And I just feel like I felt like I wasn't really often, often there are obviously exceptions getting mm. that here. Uh, directors tend to be auteurs more here. It's mm. more of a European model. But then again, I don't, I'm a theater maker and I love design. That's how I got into theater. And I, and I love style. And I'm, if I can cut two pages of text, I'm the happiest person in the world. Mm. So it's not, I'm, I'm excited by the, the different kind of ways that you can make theater mm. and in fact one of the plays that is about america the maybe the one of the most fun productions was in moscow it was in russian so i didn't really understand what was going on but i kind of understood enough and uh, this was one of yours yeah 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 right and one thing i learned is the best thing that you can do as a playwright often in rehearsal is just to sit there smile a lot and give thumbs up to actors who look scared <laughs> it's basically your that's, whole job terrible advice <laughs> terrible advice <laughs> If you can do that, everyone feels better. You don't need to know the language. Um, but we. I, just, I feel like I've sat in rehearsal rooms where that would be a really bad idea. Oh, really? Oh. oh. Hmm. Maybe I've been doing it wrong this whole time. I well, don't know. Who knows? Who knows? Like, if you're getting better results than I am, then maybe. Yeah, but because my plays are very much about the language and the rhythm, and I don't know any big words and I can't spell. Mm. So I'm very much about the musicality and rhythms and repetition of stuff. And You're I always you didn't know any big words. I actually really don't. <laughs> Just fluently used, happily used musicality in a sentence. Oh, that's true. Yeah. I could probably even spell that one. I reckon I. you probably Does could. Does it have a K in it? Uh, no. Oh. <laughs> so, yeah, so even when it's in Russian, I could tell exactly what page. I could follow along mm. and I could tell what was going on in terms of the play. I couldn't tell when they started talking amongst themselves or on opening night when the audience had a big fight, but that was all right. I couldn't really figure out what was going on there, but in terms of the text, I could tell exactly where they were up to based on just the rhythm of it. Oh, well, that's fascinating. Because, yeah. I mean, I've had the experience of watching plays in other languages a, a bunch of times. Like, there's a lot yeah. of Italian theatre that goes on here, obviously, and also go, you go to Germany and watch the shows yeah. there or whatever, and I find it's easiest to watch the kind of body language and be able to know, oh, this is sort of happening. I can kind of read the physicality of them. But being so familiar with the script, particularly into Russian too, because yeah. Cyrillic and stuff like that is a very different kind of rhythm to to English, which I imagine you wrote it and it was translated into it. It was. But if you take your glasses off and look at the page, it looks the same. <laughs> like big chunks, little chunks, one word, two. Do you know what I mean? Oh, like the, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, so you're going, pages. oh, so there's a monologue going yeah, on. We're here now. We're here. And ah. then this person's over here and this person talks to this person and then this person says one word and everyone laughs. It's like, I know exactly what page they're on. <sighs> yeah. 
Yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. That's so good. Ah, <laughs> uh, that's so good. Uh, what was the fight about? Oh no, you don't oh, know yeah. what the fight about. But how did how? What? No, I got it. It got explained to me afterwards. My my Russian friends. It's interesting. I, that play went on about two months before Pussy Riot were arrested, and then the laws around gay representation got really strict, and so I kind of got out in time. But I also um, really feel for all of my friends making theatre mm. in Russia, yeah. who I'm obviously still in touch with. Yeah. So the fight was about. You'll find this interesting. They had a feedback on opening night. Half the audience were convinced that the director had taken many artistic liberties and made it his own thing. I don't know how many swear words I'm allowed to say. And so, oh, like. really? Okay. So they basically were like wanky. Like they, they were mm -hmm. like, you, you made a lot of like young director choices that were spectacle. Yeah. And that meant that we couldn't really see what the story of the play was, which uh -huh. is an interesting because that is something that people sometimes say about plays. The other half of the audience completely disagreed. I'm actually with the disagreeing one. I thought it was great. Yeah. But it's Russia, which is wonderful. And uh, yeah, so there was a lot of yelling that happened. Uh, and so it was yeah. in a forum afterwards to begin with. It wasn't actually it wasn't during, during the, the middle show. of the step fight no, starts. it wasn't during the show. It was after the show. It was a talkback All after right. the show. But the whole audience Only contemporary audience member, I can, no, a playwright, Australian playwright I can think who has engendered that kind of thing before is Ben Ellis. As you and Ben Ellis oh, have had yeah. fights post the post show. I can see how that's yeah, yeah. So that was kind of fun. And so what are you doing now? Um, aside from the show you're doing here, before we yep. get to here, like yep. you, the work you're doing over there at the moment, because you're obviously out of school and you're no longer an emerging playwright over there, surely. Yeah. So I live in LA now, actually. Mm -hmm. So I've been in LA for a little while. I've just finished doing a play, a new play called Zurich at New York Theatre Workshop mm -hmm. in New York. Mm -hmm. And I'm doing an adaptation of Jane Bowles' Two Serious Ladies for uh, Yale Rep. Mm-hmm. It's a big theater there and doing an adaptation, of, well, like a loose adaptation of Alice in Wonderland called Aaliyah in America Land that's about what it means to be a young person, refugee in America, trying to navigate the American immigration system. Yeah, right. And that was for children, but we've decided we're going to do it, that the company decided that it would should be a main stage adult show. Oh, amazing. I don't know if anyone's rewritten their own children's show into their own adult show, but it was a very interesting weekend. Yeah, right. I have to say. What's the main difference? You can't be as overt and you can be more violent, especially talking about Alice in Wonderland. And you can also be oh, more subtle, but a lot of the kind of like, yeah, you have to kind of take out all the obvious stuff sometimes. Yeah, like right. with kids theatre. I mean, but again, it was like the first kids play I've written because yeah, yeah. I don't generally write kids play. Yeah, there was a bunch of things that changed. But interestingly, spectacle-wise, and it's definitely designed or written with the intention of it being very much big budget, big theatre, but like made like a lot of like live sound, a lot of like little instruments, a lot of lighting and, and lo-fi kind of effects in terms of Alice getting bigger and smaller. And yeah, yeah, yeah. it starts off in a grocery store uh, and, then, and then ends up in a post office and then it's kind of, you know, whatever the crazy that is America. Mm. So... In terms of spectacle, didn't cha I think the things that you do for children um, works for adults too. Mm, yeah, and I, I think, think so. that from a lot of the theatre I saw when I was younger, the best theatre I saw actually was often a youth theatre in terms mm. of the 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 art of it. Yeah, yeah. Like you sit down and you're like, oh, I'm watching a piece of art. This is this this is art, as opposed to a whole lot of people talking with a one couple of yellow lights on them. Yeah. That, that feels like it's a specific reference. But it could be so many different plays, so you many, see. Yes, it could. It could indeed. <laughs> 
So, like, I know a whole bunch about Australian theatre, but I know nothing about the rest of the world. So there's enough here just to occupy my time with, really, and there's no sort of value for me to go and know about that stuff. But I'm very curious about it, particularly your experience of it. So you were working with, I've already forgotten the goddamn yeah, name so of it. Yeah, so New York Theatre Workshop. So Colt Core was the producing company, and right. they commissioned the play initially. And actually, one of the things I love about New York Theatre Workshop is they're one of the few, well, I mean, I love all the playwright-centred theatres. I'm a playwright. Obviously. Makes sense. But also, I do love them. I love the fact that they have a lot of development. I love the fact that um, when a play gets produced, if it all works correctly, it's ready, as opposed to things getting thrown up after first drafts, yeah. Australian work, which I do feel, sorry, happens too much. Oh, here. totally still. Um, yeah. So there's that. But then New York Theatre Workshop is more of a director, so the relationships are tend to be with the directors. And so the work they do is things like elevator repair service. Ah, uh, yeah. That, so Gats yeah, yeah, kind yeah. of things like that. So they are one of the theatres in New York that I love going to. Them and BAM that tends to bring in a lot of British stuff. Um, where you go yeah, and you get to... You're going to need to translate that for me. Oh, sorry. Um, what's a Brooklyn? Uh, something of music? Academy, maybe? Yeah, maybe. But it's just a venue in Brooklyn right. that has some really beautiful, amazing kind of big spaces in it and uh, a lot of work that tends to be more auteur directors from Europe yeah, will yeah. be programmed there. So it's like a... That uh, program there. So you was the yeah. there are venues that you would hire out here as a kind of independent. I've got a show on. I can turn up and blow two grand on hiring this space. Oh, um, how much of that is in New York? Mm. Not as or in America in general. Not as much, to be honest. I mean, there's Broadway. That's all commercial. Like that's all producers deciding to hire mm. whatever theater they're going to hire. Um, that's not like I can blow two grand on it though. No, that's a little bit more <laughs> that's than two grand. A little more grand. than that. <laughs> um, there probably are. I mean, here's the thing: like as a playwright, I work in established companies, mm. so I don't, I don't produce my own work. Yeah, yeah. And um, so the way to make it through, as though I'm gonna, there are different ways, yeah. and some some playwrights do produce their own work. That's the way they make their work. But I'm, I'm interested, and maybe it comes back to I've just been lucky and got mm. opportunities in big companies. But I think it's more than that. I think it's that I have always been, as someone who grew up on the farm, who grew up without understanding what an artist was really mm. around me. I'm definitely like a working class person that believes in making work, whether that's TV, which is one of the reasons I moved to TV actually, mm -hmm. or theater for people who are not artists. Yeah, yeah. My characters generally are not artists and the people that I'm making theater for are not artists. Like my friends who are artists can come and I love it when they love it, but I'm making work for whatever we want to call general public people mm. so that, that means a, major companies you know yeah okay that specifically there or everywhere, everywhere. including here yeah yeah okay yeah That's interesting more interesting to me oh well yeah i mean and the point of making this work is surely to talk to as many people as possible right yeah to yeah uh, i mean yes all right there's values yeah. there's some kind of value to having the conversation about art with artists etc but i mean it does seem to happen yeah you can a do great both deal. yeah yeah yeah, yeah. But it's interesting that major companies reflect that kind of thing because here I would argue not so much. Major companies would reflect a very specific kind of cross-section of the audience that represent a more artistic, cultured kind of we go because it's a cultural experience as opposed to over there where it sounds like you get a more broad people uh, go. No, I think it's the same. I think what I mean is just not making work for other practicing artists. Mm. But definitely but the, the problem with theatre, yeah, the problem, I mean, we, we all, all acknowledge this, that the, the problem with theatre is that people don't feel welcome. Yeah. And that's not just because they don't have 120 bucks 
to buy a ticket. It's mm. also because we are pretentious and wanky and mm. make people feel mm-hmm. small and silly when actually they're perfectly reasonable for falling asleep in something that was shit. And that makes me mad. Mm. Um, w- um, how do we do that? <laughs> how do we fix it or how do we... No, how are we doing it? How are we doing it to those people? Because before we even start worrying about how we fix it, what is it that makes people do that aside from the $120 ticket? Um, I know what I think. I'm curious what you think. Yeah. I don't know how it works so much in the in the newer venues. There's definitely... Well, but see, this is interesting. What I was going to say is a lot of theatres are kind of big and spectacly and look fancy and old. But here's the thing about that is that actually those, if you think about those theatres in, in the US, they're the theatres that have the Broadway musicals. Same and they're here. actually the theatres where people will travel from yeah. all over the country. They were the ones set up by the commercial networks to begin with. Yeah. yeah. which Yeah. So actually that doesn't work. I actually love Times Square. I don't love walking through there when I'm in a hurry or when I'm jet lagged because it's very bright. But I actually love the fact that it's sort of one of the places in the world where theatre is mainstream. Mm. And I don't need theatre to be mainstream. I don't actually need, and I really struggle sometimes when there are conversations or conferences. There's a lot of conferences that happen in the US. Mm. Conferences around how do we make theatre mainstream? How do we involve more people? How do we involve more young people is important, but how do we involve just more of a cross-section of community? And part of me is like, people are making great art that they want to see. Theatre isn't for everyone. Mm. Now, controversial. Well, as in the one human making theatre that they want to make, you should make what you want to make. Yeah. And my biggest thing is economically, if if it was accessible to anyone that wanted to come, we would have a change in the audience. But because we don't, because we haven't made it free, because we haven't made it ten dollars, theatre doesn't have to be for someone who doesn't want to go. Like just because somebody likes a different kind of art form that might be like anything from Instagram videos to hip hop doesn't mean that that's any less exciting or amazing or pushing form any less. And if they've made a decision that they prefer to make that kind of work or watch that kind of work, then come and see your very pretentious four hour thing with a lot of big words they don't know. Great. Mm. And the problem I have with that is that, yeah, sometimes we can, as theatre artists, can decide that we're smarter than other people and that makes me crazy. I absolutely agree. The only thing (laughs) I would say about that is that that makes it sound like theatre is all four hours long and full of wank. No, no, that's true. Yeah. And there's a lot of different kinds. Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing I miss actually, and it's purely weather actually, is the outdoor theatre here. Oh, yeah. A lot of outdoor theatre here. Oh, you don't get a lot of, like, not even the summer? Snows, snows. Well, uh, no, because um, a lot of them, there are snow, not really. Because even in in, in New York, there's Shakespeare, the public. Yeah, Shakespeare in the Park. park. Yeah. Yeah. It's actually quite hard to get a ticket to that. But because they have so many people, and because for half of the year it's snowing in a lot of places, they don't build cities with outdoor spaces as much. Um, so then when it comes to summer, there are some amazing festivals that happen outside, but I used to work on a lot of outdoor festivals. I used to do a lot of like Adelaide festival, Mm. Melbourne festival Mm. and things on the river and, and circus outside. And like, cause I crewed and designed on a lot of different shows for Mm. a long, for years before I moved, I just worked on just me personally worked on a lot of outdoor work and I do miss that a little bit. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That is interesting. But I suppose, yeah, like the weather and also, I mean, not that I have a great deal of experience with anywhere in America, but I did spend a half an hour in New York, right? So, <laughs> and I, the, my limited experience of that is, yeah, one big outside space and the rest of it's all buildings and streets, right? 
Well, yeah, yeah kind of. Yeah. There's a tiny little parks here and there as well, sort of there walled are. off and stuff. Yeah, and the thing is, somewhere like LA has great weather and great spaces, and that's why we make TV there, so we can shoot outside all year round. <laughs> I mean, that's why that's why we're there. That's why they set it up as the place where you make film. That's because the light you have light for longer. In yeah, the day. right. And your whole scheduling and your whole life is designed around how much light you have and the assumption that it's never going to rain. The whole industry is based on that. And yet still not a lot of outside work, outside theatre work. That's interesting. That seems like a niche market to open up over there, really. <laughs> All right, tell me about the current show. All right, we're doing a play called Lottie in the Late Afternoon at 45 Downstairs. It's a kin collective show, and it's directed by Mark Downey, who's amazing. And the actors are Ali Fowler, Laura Maitland, Link Hasler, and Michaela Bannis. As a comedy, I, I just write comedies. I mean, I write dark comedies, but they're all comedies. Yeah, I was just going to say, you don't just write comedies. Like, you do write <laughs> comedies, but they're not just comedies. So tell us about it. What is it? Oh, look, the, it, this is an, it, actually, this is a great play as an example of maybe a few of the things that we were talking about. I wanted to learn how to write a, a structured play with an intermission, which, which it does. I also wanted to make work that was in conversation with and played against and sort of existing play forms like comedy of manners kind of things mm -hmm. or so you learn what is considered a well-structured play mm -hmm. or you learn what all the rules are and then you break, you break them kind them. of thing yep. yeah which is exactly kind of what I wanted to figure out I because you haven't done that before as a well because if you're in a country that doesn't teach playwrights you don't learn what the rules are mm. so that was the big thing for me going to, going to Yale was yeah. like I want to learn what all the rules are so that then I can you know, it's a, it put it put everything through like a queer lens or a feminist lens. Yeah, or, yeah. Which is what this play is both of those things. So there's that, but then also, yeah, there's it's a bunch of characters who are having a lot of feelings about the world, but they're not artists. And I'm fascinated by people who are not artists hmm. because I think like all my Most sadness and all my awkwardness and all my whatever, I I sit in that and I experience whatever that is because I can then make an object out of it and I can write it down and I can share it with people. Mm. And that's luckily my 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 uh, employment, but it's also like my passion. Mm. Um, if I couldn't make something that helped the world out of all of my inconvenient feelings, I just, I mean, I don't know, I don't know who I'd be. And people who aren't artists are fascinating to me because I'm like, how do you be in a world that has... Trump that has this play is very much about the dangers of nostalgia, mm. which is absolutely current here as much as any other, especially colonial here in Australia. country. Oh yeah, oh yeah. my god, the country's yeah, built yeah. on nostalgia. Yeah, 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 exactly. So so basically the premise of the play is it's, it's a bunch of people, there's one one woman in particular that is always thinking about doing fun things and doesn't do it. So she but they're from New York, they don't have any money. They book uh, uh, two days in not in summer in New England, in a house in New England so that they can have a New England vacation. It's very inconvenient. It's like four hours away. And what it didn't say on the Airbnb ad is that, yes, it's a short walk from the house to the sea, but there's a massive ass cliff in between. So the play is all set right on the edge of a cliff, which is sort of, you know, it's a cliff. And at any moment, you don't know what's going to happen to anyone if they get too close. But it's also just obviously a, a metaphor for a sort of existential crisis that people in all over the world are having but in america in particular like economically it's the generation of people that don't own things so mm. one thing i found interesting is in the past a lot of plays from the generation before ours have been written with an assumption of home so they're like mm. set in living rooms or they're what we call kitchen sink yeah, dramas yeah. there's an assumption that people own property 
and then there's plays written in homes and they're set in homes. And so I've written a bunch of plays that are set in parks or on the porch of a vacation home they've only got for two days Mm. or just this idea around ownership of property and what that means when you're talking about stability of future. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it totally speaks to permanence, right? And that notion of, I feel like... You have to find a different sense of permanence or accept the fact that humans aren't permanent and objects are. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So there's that and then very much sort of what it means to live knowing that the environment potentially is unsustainable for human life mm-hmm. in 50 to 100 years, whatever you know, that, and then just knowing you don't have any retirement, that your money, there's sort of some jokes through it about some of the jobs that some of them have are probably going to be done by robots in five to 10 years, mm-hmm. which is not inaccurate. Mm-hmm. And also, you know, you go home on a Sunday night and even what do you, on Monday you just go back to work and in a way that's sort of off the cliff. Like what is what is the... What's on the other side of that? Yeah, so this sort of neurotic obsession with not breaking anything all weekend, which sort of, so prioritizing objects Mm. over um, experience. So there's a whole lot of kind of comedy around that. So I'm, I'm obviously very interested. I do a lot of kind of activism in Hollywood and in New York around equal rights. And I think for me that also includes what it is to be a woman trying to make work about women trying to be just understood as a human being in the world. But it also means how shit it is to grow up and be taught all the rules that you are taught you need to be to be a good man. Mm. So the male character in this play is just as, like I love him just as much and he goes on the same similar kind of journey in that his gender has taught him that he needs to have an amazing job or have everything under control. And he's actually the character that has the anxiety disorder. He's actually the character that like freaks out when he realizes that his his special breathing relaxation app isn't going to work without the internet. That he's the, he's <laughs> that I have so much sympathy for that mm. straight white guy character and a sympathy not in the sense of, because I think we need to find a way of talking about toxic masculinity that doesn't deny responsibility mm. for violent actions at all. Mm. Nothing. I got no, I got nothing, no time for that. But at the same time, talk about like, how is it that we're raising people so gendered and why are we all, it doesn't work for anyone. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, a system of oppression is a system of oppression. It has violent outcomes and those are to be deplored, but the system itself is the thing that needs to be deconstructed, right? Yeah. yeah. So this play is sort of about a bunch of that kind of stuff as well. Well, that sounds like a lighthearted romp. Yay! <laughs> but it is though, and that's the thing about me. It's like a lot of kind of very silly poo jokes. No, yeah. just one silly poo joke, but lots of silly jokes. You know? yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. I, I can't imagine it's changed a huge amount since you have not changed a huge amount either, but <laughs> the work has always been adorable and so have and are you. So, uh, well, I'll be definitely be going. I hope so. We're using oh, so the whole space. Show? No, it's not a fringe show. Ah. No, same time though. Yeah, right. Yeah, but no, not, not a fringe show. But yeah, no, we're using all of the kind of beautiful walls of the white walls and windows of the space and putting a yeah. little house in it. Oh, amazing. Um, kind of that you can sort of see through. Oh, cool. Translucency and lots of brilliant, brilliant lighting and, and ideas from Bronwyn Pringle, who's a stunning lighting Fair, designer. Fantastic lighting yeah. designer, obviously. I'm, I'm very biased. And the whole play is about light because the characters are obsessed with times of day and how beautiful. I mean, it's called Lottie in the late afternoon. Mm. That's sort of what it what it is being lit. Yeah, what happens to objects when they're kind of lit from the side. Having small moments and small experiences in life and how they're kind of wonderful. Yeah, yeah. But then you feel silly from having them and you don't know if you want to share them with anyone because maybe they won't understand. You know, that reminds me of the, one of my favorite things that I've been watching you do from afar, which is your little dialogues between you and the pig. 
<laughs> I have a guinea pig. I love them <laughs> so much. <laughs> like I really do. Um, I, I, they're only going to exist there. Are you ever going to do anything with them? You should animate them. You should stage them. There's something. They're just the most awesome thing. Oh, I should do more of you them. You really should. They're so oh, good. Oh, dear. I know. I had a meeting with my with my reps just before I came away, and they were like, all right, let's sit down and talk about like six shows you might want to make. And I like, you know. Develop, just developing stuff that I want to make TV shows I want to make and I was like look this is going to sound really silly but I write these conversations between myself and my guinea pig and they are according to everyone and I know more interesting than anything else I have to say ever about anything so yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then uh, yeah my reps jumped on and they had a look and they were like alright so yeah maybe we need to do something with this and oh, then, of right. course, yeah but of course Yes, and my manager's first question, because she's amazing, is how long do you think it'll live? Because <laughs> they're planning ahead. And I'm like, well, she's actually quite old. I think we might need to get a different one. But like, because, yeah. Well, I mean, you've got a backlog of stuff, <laughs> and then it, it's going to have a tragic ending, clearly. <laughs> but then you'll have a rebirth. You have another, you know, see if you can make a, a recast it and have a second Becky. It'll be great. It's pretty <clears> funny. She spends a lot, because I just worked on season one and two of Glow. Mm. Which Netflix amazing, by the way. Show. Yeah, yeah. It's fun. And, uh, yeah, so, so the guinea pig was on set every day for that. And she was basically, yeah, there's a lot of fun backstage shenanigans that happened. We made a rule where, that where the actors weren't allowed to hold pig while they were in costume. Ah. That was the rule because she's a bit fluffy and whatever. Yeah. So there was a lot of like, can I hold? No, wait, no, lots of, lots of, but she basically just jumps around the props department and the grips and the everyone and props made her a big house and they like made five replicas of her, which is a bit odd to be honest, because oh, they look, they look quite a lot like her, which is terrifying. And uh, every night I'd go and get her from whatever department had claimed her that day at the end of the day and take her home and bring her back in the morning and dump her with someone. Cause like I, I'm running around and I, and she can't be on set cause she talks too much. <laughs> like she can't be on set while we're shooting because she talks too much, uh -huh. but she sort of hangs out in my hoodie and stuff. But there's some pretty great photos. Well, one of the Betty Gilpin, who's an amazing actress, one of my favorites, and she's up for an Emmy for her role on glow as the kind of best friend character. There's an amazing photo of her dressed as Liberty Bell Americano character and my guinea pig dressed in a matching costume because ah, um, I awesome. think at some point we decided that the costume holding the guinea pig in costume rule didn't apply if the guinea pig was, was also, also in a costume. costume. Uh -huh. Right. Yeah. Though I would imagine those are expensive spandex costumes. The guinea pig scratch? <laughs> <laughs> She's okay. Yeah, they right. do. She does eat the hair though. Right. Yeah, okay. that was the problem. Yeah, this gives there's me a lot of hair. It's an 80s show. It's, it's a lot of big it, hair. Yeah, yeah, there is a lot of big hair. <laughs> you um, can lose a guinea pig in that hair. It, it gives, <laughs> honestly, this gives me such a different, like I've got all this, the, the, the little dialogues that you've got. And now I know she's got this kind of Bojack Horseman backstory in she Hollywood. Does. She really, really does. <laughs> we've, been, we've written it. She'd be written in and then written out of so many episodes. Ah, ah, ah. Okay, that's my favourite thing. We're stopping the interview there. <laughs> you have been listening to the Witness Interview Podcast with Amelia Roper, sound and music by Ben Keane. I'm Robert Reed. Remember to subscribe if you don't already, but of course you do because you're listening to the Interview Podcast. Uh, so tell all of your friends to subscribe because we still need like a whole bunch more people to make this thing regularly sustainable. See you next time. <laughs>